You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Chopping It Up. I'm your host, Michael Hanlon, the Senior Restaurant and Food Service Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Today, we're joined by Ralph Bauer, CEO of The Melt. Thanks for doing this, Ralph. Thank you, Michael. I really appreciate getting a chance to uh, talk to you. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this one. Uh, For our listeners, the two of us uh, first crossed paths about a decade ago when Ralph was the CEO and president at at Popeye's. That was uh, some run that uh, you, Cheryl, and the team had, what really sticks out to you about that experience and what were maybe some of the most important takeaways about building a successful brand? Yeah, so I grew up in New Orleans. I'm not sure if you knew that, but so for, for a guy who grew up in New Orleans, Popeye's is like the pinnacle of fast food. And so uh, that was really a truly exciting time. And, and to be able to turn around an iconic brand like Popeye's was, was really pretty exciting. But the, the other thing that made that time really meaningful to me is that we rebuilt that business on the premise of focusing on franchisees first. And uh, the first half of my career in the restaurant industry was spent working with franchisees. And so um, working with a brand that truly believed that um, you know, our customer was the franchisee and that if you served the franchisees, that would be what builds the business. And I think that we I think that we proved that. And, uh, you know, we went into a brand that didn't have a great history of franchisee or, or franchisee relationship. And by building that relationship, we were really able to build the business. And, you know, it's a it's just a totally different business today than it was back in. And, uh, you know, 2008 when, when we, uh, started there. Yeah, that, uh, that was awesome, man. I, um, I actually had a client yesterday asking me about restaurant brands and I don't know if you're following the story, but Patrick Doyle, um, is now the chairman of the board and he, he took a stake in the company. And, uh, I actually told this investor he should read Cheryl's book, Dare to Serve, uh, if he wants uh, a good, you know, inside scoop of, of how Patrick's looking at things, because all they've been talking about since since he joined on was uh, on all the investor calls and on all the earnings calls is uh, store level profitability and serving the franchisees. And, 
you know, to your point, I think, I think you and the team really proved that out at Popeye's. Yeah. You, if you're going to be a great franchise brand, the way you do that is by serving the franchisees. And if your franchisees are happy and making great money, they're going to build more restaurants and that's what builds your brand. Um, when we started there, you know, if you look back to 2008, 2009, we were building about, you know, 20 or 30 new restaurants a year. And, and most of those weren't very successful. And uh, today, you know, they're, they're, uh, we, before I left in, in, uh, you know, 2014 range, we were up to about, uh, you know, a hundred plus, And now they're even higher than that. And, and it, because of the fran- if the franchise believe in you and believe in the leadership and they trust you, they're going to build more restaurants and that's how you build, that's how you build a great brand. And, um, when franchisees make more money, they build more restaurants and, and, uh, that, that's what makes everybody successful. For sure. All right. So where have you worked since Popeye's and, and what attracted you to the melt? Yeah. So after, uh, I left Popeye's, I went to, uh, Payway and I'm not sure if you're familiar with Payway, but Payway is a fast casual brand, about 200 units that was, uh, started by Rick Federico at, at PF Chang's. And, uh, I went in there with the intention of, uh, splitting that off into a, into a standalone brand, um, worked with that brand for, for a couple years, um, built, um, there was, there was actually no dedicated, um, uh, employees to the brand when, when I got there. And so we built a whole standalone unit and, uh, um, and then, uh, I had family in, the in the, in the Bay area, my son was here. Uh, and I got a, I got a call one day from, uh, a, a bunch of folks at the melt and I was, you know, the melt was a pretty, pretty small brand. And it was funny. I had had a, I had had a conversation with, with my wife prior. And I said, you know, I'm not sure about grilled cheese brands. I'm not sure if, if grilled cheese is a, is enough to sustain a restaurant brand. And then sure enough, I get a call a couple of weeks later from uh, the investors at the melt. And at the time um, uh, they had, they had 18 restaurants spread across three States, Texas, um, Colorado and California. And they were struggling and uh, they, they, asked me to come in and take a look and see what I thought. Um, and, uh, I was really, uh, impressed with the, uh, the, the board and the group of investors. There's a bunch of really smart people. Um, Ron Johnson, who kind of created the Apple store and was, uh, uh, you know, at, at JC Penney and Target and, and, uh, uh, Michael Marks, who was, uh, who's a venture, a tech venture capital guy. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I talked to these guys and they were just, you know, a a pretty exciting group. And I decided, decided to come out to California and sell grilled cheese sandwiches. (laughs) So, so how many restaurants, uh, at the melt, uh, is it company owned? Is it franchise? Yeah, um, so and can a, you talk a, about the service model a little, a little bit? Too? Yeah. So we're, we're a fast casual brand. It's, it's been an adventure really. So when I got here, we had 18 
restaurants, as I mentioned, in three states. But one of the first things I did was um, closed everything outside of California. And uh, when we started, I think that we got a little ahead of ourselves. We were founded in 2011 and with a lot of fanfare. And, and the uh, from day one, when we opened our first restaurant, we said we were going to have 500 restaurants in five years. And before we really had a brand yet, we were already planning the 500 restaurants. And <laughs> we kind of put the cart before the horse. So when I came in in 2016, um, what my idea was is let's let's focus on California. Let's get California right. Let's build a great brand. And uh, then we'll start expanding again. And, and that's what we're doing today. So um, we got down to as low as seven restaurants. Um, today we have 12 with four more under construction and five more in the pipeline for next year. And during the pandemic, we bought a second brand, um, Homeroom, which is a macaroni and cheese brand out of uh, Oakland. And uh, they had two restaurants a block apart. One is a uh, full service, uh, small full service sit down restaurant. And the other one is a block away. It does uh, sit down or d rather does carry out and delivery only and uh, carry out and delivery only. We did over $4 million last year in, in macaroni and cheese. So it's a good, cool. good business. Travels well. It travels well. And we have the best mac and cheese you'll ever have in your life. So it's uh, it's a good it's a good brand. We just built our third. We opened up our third homeroom in Berkeley a couple of months ago, and so we're just starting to uh, take a look at that brand and its possibilities for expansion. Awesome! And so all the new stores this year and next are going to be in California as well. Um, next year we will open our first restaurants outside of, uh, California, which will be in, uh, which will be in Phoenix. So we'll get, we'll get one or two open in Phoenix next year. Nice. Um, and, um, are, are most of the new restaurants going to be staffed by existing general managers or are you going to have to go outside of the system maybe to, to hire some? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, um, Whenever a brand goes outside of its its you know traditional area, um, you got to be very very careful. And I think the best thing you can do is to um, re convince folks who are in your core group of restaurants to relocate. And uh, so that's that's our plan is to get folks to relocate. But I think we're also going to be hiring people in the uh, you know, in the Phoenix area, we actually have one person in our system now who's from the Phoenix Scottsdale area that we relocated to San Diego and he's, he's there now training. And, uh, our, our intent is once we open, uh, Phoenix that he'll, uh, he'll move back there. But I think, I think that's super important. And I think that, uh, uh, a lot of brands make that mistake is that when you start to expand outside of your, your core area, if you try to do it with no n new folks, a lot of times that culture doesn't move with you. And a big part of growing any, uh, any brand is being able to move that culture. Um, one example I like to give is um, I remember when 
Chick-fil-A was, was just this little chicken brand in the, in the Southeast. And, um, being the very knowledgeable person that I am, I told anybody who would listen, I'm not sure Chick-fil-A is ever going to be more than a regional player because it's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be so hard for them to, uh, to, they're so culture heavy. It's going to be so hard for them to, uh, create that culture all across the country and kudos to them. Cheryl is on their board now, as a matter of fact. Um, but kudos to them because they showed they showed it can be done. And, you know, that they have that same it's my pleasure culture in California as they have in Georgia. And that's what's allowed them to be successful every place they've gone. Yeah, in New Jersey as well. I, I uh, once my son gets a little older, I'd, I'd, lo- I'd love for him to work for Chick-fil-A. Yeah, it's a it's a uh, great brand with a great culture. I agree with you. I, you can't you can't go wrong there. Yeah. All right. So the melt has had an incredible run since 2020. You know, uh, one of the you know best pandemic success stories that I've heard of. Maybe you know the best out there. Can you talk about your experience during the pandemic? I, you know, I'm sure it wasn't easy at first, uh, and maybe talk about the changes that enabled the chain to survive and then grow AUVs the way it has? Yeah, so that's a great question. So um, I remember March 15th or so of 2020, uh, we celebrated 100 consecutive weeks of positive comp sales and things were looking really good for our brand. And on March 18th, three days later, they announced a shelter in place in San Francisco and then later in California. So we went from 100 consecutive weeks of positive comps to negative 80% um, pretty much overnight, which goes to prove one of my favorite sayings that when when things are good, they're never as good as they seem. And uh, But again, being very knowledgeable in these kind of things, I said to myself, this can't last longer than two or three weeks. And so I made some some really good decisions based on uh, really bad knowledge. So because I thought it would only last two or three weeks, I wanted to make sure that we didn't lose any employees um, while we were shut for this short period of time. And so I uh, I remember I, I went to work and and uh, a team member who'd been with us for a number of years who I was very close to was really on the verge of tears and was worried about losing her job and how she was going to be able to feed her family. And I said, I said to her, look, you don't have to worry. Um, you know, your, your paycheck is safe while, as long as this thing lasts. And, uh, then, you know, I was very fortunate that I had, um, some investors who backed me on this, but I, I told all of my folks, look, um, we're going to pay you whether you come to work or not. If you're not comfortable coming to work, don't come to work. But uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna pay you um, if you come in or or don't come in. Now I will say that most of the folks didn't believe me at first, and so they came to work anyway. Um, but but we didn't we didn't really lose anybody. But the problem was, as I mentioned, our sales were there was basically nobody, especially in downtown San Francisco. And our office is above one of the restaurants on Market Street in the heart of the financial district in San Francisco. And and uh, about 
three or four days in to the shelter in place, I remember I looked over the balcony and there was almost nobody in the restaurant. And the only people in there were first responders. And there were some some police officers who were at the counter ordering. And I just yelled over the railing. I said, you know, don't charge them for their food. Um, you know, just give it to them for free. Then I started thinking about it. And one of the things that I knew is I had people in every restaurant and they didn't really have anything to do. And they they didn't really feel like, you know, they were needed. And, and I thought, well, why don't we give all first responders their meals for free? And so within about 24 hours, I told everybody, hey, look, if you have any first responders come in, just give them their meals for free. And the next thing you know, that went viral. So within about a week, um, I have a couple of restaurants, one at Stanford um, in Palo Alto and one in La Jolla, where we had um, hospitals within walking distance of, uh, of our restaurants. And so within about a week, we started to have people lining up um, in the morning and we would have lines out the door um, all day open to close. Um, I remember at Stanford, um, we were doing about 13,000 or so a day and 12,000 of it was free. <laughs> and, and, and still I kept on thinking, well, this is only going to last a couple of weeks and we're getting all this exposure. Um, but as things started to, to, to move on, first of all, I couldn't handle all that business, especially at Stanford. It was, um, I worked, ended up working a Thursday and Friday myself, open to close on the grill at Stanford because I had heard the crew was ready to uh, mutiny. And uh, and at the end of the Friday, we actually ran out of food uh, at about 10 o'clock on Friday and people were just worn out. And I said, man, I just don't know if I can do this anymore. And I was really, um, I was really worried because I knew I was going to have to cut it off because it was so hard on the team. And, uh, but I couldn't figure out, you know, where I was going to go from there and how I would explain it to folks. And so um, I had to make a decision. Do I go to a 50% discount? What do I do? And uh, uh, so finally I just decided, you know, I'm just going to go cold turkey and end it all together. And to my surprise, um, no backlash whatsoever. And all of a sudden, we started to get a steady stream of people. And, and another interesting story was La Jolla. So Stanford had always been our highest volume restaurant. And at the time, uh, you know, they were, you know, a, uh, you know, maybe a $2 million restaurant. I was just looking before the call. Um, this same week in 2018, the week that we just finished, Stanford did was our highest volume restaurant. And they did a little bit under 40,000, 38,000. Last week they did 95. Um, and um, La Jolla was the other restaurant. La Jolla I had had open for a couple of years and, and it wasn't a great performer, um, but they also had hospitals close by and we were having people lining up. And, you know, our, our awareness in Southern California wasn't as good as it was in Northern California where we were founded. So La Jolla is a fascinating story. For two years, 
we had done about 20,000 a week, plus or minus $1,000 every single week for two years, you know, 19 to 21. It was pretty mediocre. And uh, then overnight, we went down to four or 5,000. And uh, but by April, so, you know, shelter in place was in March. By April, things were starting to come back. And we went from four or 5,000 to 10 or 15,000. And by the end of April, we were back to the 20,000 that we were doing pre-COVID. Um, in May, we started doing record weeks. And in June, we did 40,000. And in July, we did 50,000. And uh, 50,000, we averaged 50,000 a week. And I remember my manager saying, well, we're, we want to beat Stanford. We want to do, do 60,000. And in August, we did 60,000 a week. And in, in September, we did 70,000 a week. Um, and uh, last year, that restaurant did 4.3 million. And um, so there was, a, there was a couple of things at play. I think the first thing is, is that we did get some, we did build awareness with this free meals for first responders. We won a Jefferson Award for public service in San Francisco. Um, you know, it, it kind of went viral that we were, that we were doing this. So that was a piece of it. But a bigger piece of it is um, when people came, we had really, really good food and really, really good service. And because we didn't lose any any team members because we paid them whether they came to work or not, we actually had two months after the shelter in place started. So in June of 20, we had more employees than we had in March of 20. And so when folks came, we, we have never, um, we have never really struggled to handle the business that came in. So when the business came, we were ready. The other thing is, is that, you know, we were founded by tech entrepreneurs. Our founder, John Kaplan, who interestingly enough is the ambassador to Singapore um, today, um, was the uh, founder of the flip video phone that he sold to Cisco. And um, so, and all of our investors were tech folks. And so we had a very good technology platform that we were able to build on. And when third-party delivery became so prevalent during uh, during COVID. You know, we went from, you know, pre-COVID, we were 18 to 20% delivery. Um, and uh, during COVID, we got up as high as 80%, 80% delivery. But um, it didn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't difficult to ramp up because we had the systems in place to handle it. So, so two things that were very important. We had the tech platforms in place to handle the business when it came. And we also had, you know, the food and the service models where um, we deliver what we call an I love it here experience. And so when people came and, and had that I love it here experience, they told their friends and things and things just snowballed. So actually 2020, um, even with, you know, horrible marches and March and April that were down, you know, I think March was down 50% and April was down 60 or 70%. Um, 2020 ended up being a record year because of uh, the amount of sales we did in the back half of the year. But the interesting thing is that our average unit volumes um, actually doubled 
during COVID. So I mentioned that Stanford was our highest volume restaurant. Um, you know, pre-COVID, they were doing, you know, 30 or 40 a week. And, and uh, you know, now they, last year they did 4.5. And this year they're on pace to do over 5 million. Um, every restaurant we have has doubled their volume since the beginning of COVID. And, uh, you know, it's one, th- you, you have to have, One of the not very complicated beliefs that I have is if you're going to be a great restaurant company, you need to run great restaurants. And, you know, that is the operator in me. But if people come to your restaurant and you don't run a great restaurant, it it it, it doesn't do you any good. Some of my team gets frustrated with me sometimes because I don't get excited about great sales. What I get excited about is great guest feedback because great sales are about what you did yesterday. Great guest feedback is the best indicator you have of what you're gonna do tomorrow. And so I'm fanatical about guest feedback and tracking guest feedback and following guest feedback. And, um, you know, if, if we have a great sales day and I don't feel like we delivered that I love it here experience, I'm not happy. I, I really don't care if it was a record day if we didn't deliver I love it here. And, but um, our number one goal is to deliver an I love it here experience to every guest. And that's all about great restaurant operations. And, and I think, I really think in the restaurant people in the restaurant business, people underestimate how important that is. Um, I love that. I th- love yeah, that. Yeah. So I love it here. Right after I came on board in 2016, um, you know, the volumes of our average, our volumes have grown from um, $700,000 annual unit, average unit volumes to over $3 million average unit volumes since 2017. And uh, I don't know another restaurant story. I'm not sure that's ever happened before in the restaurant business. I don't know of a story. I like haven't, that, I but. haven't heard of it. And so, um, you know, we, we really did a couple of things. The first one is I was, I was sitting in my office and, and the end of, about the end of my first year. And uh, I got a review in from our Stanford restaurant where the guests started off and they said, I love it here. And they went on to explain why they loved it at the Stanford restaurant. And uh, I asked myself, God, what would happen if every guest when they walked out the door could say, I love it here. And so then I asked my restaurant support center team the same question. I said, read this review. What would happen if every guest said, I love it here when they walked out the door? And I have a weekly call with my GMs and I asked them the same thing as I said, hey, look at this. What do you think would happen if every guest said, I love it here when they walked out the door? And within a week, we had torn up every mission and vision statement we had in the company. And we had changed our our mission to delivering an I love it here experience to every guest. And the thing I love about that is that our team members understand what it means to have an experience so good that you can say, I love it here. And twice a day we do rallies, you know, before our lunch shift and our dinner shift, twice a day in every single restaurant. And the only purpose of the rally is. Everybody says, what's our number one goal? 
to deliver an I love it here experience. And then they would say, what does that mean? And that's how we start the shift. And I don't actually tell people how to deliver an I love it here experience. I say, Michael, what does it mean to you to have an I love it here experience? Deliver that to the guest. And uh, that's been that's been tremendously successful, um, which is kind of nuts and bolts of running great restaurants. But the other thing is, one of the things I learned at Popeye's was that um, you don't always have all the answers. And um, in the case of Popeye's, where we are a franchise organization, there isn't a problem that we have the franchisees don't already know the answer to. And in in our case at Melt, there wasn't a problem that we had that our team members and our guests didn't know the answer to. And so when I came to Melt, I sent out a letter to everyone in our database that asked two questions. I said, I'm the new guy. Um, I have two questions for you. What do you hope I change? And what do you hope I don't change? And I got 1,100 responses back. And then I met with all of my internal team and my GMs, and I asked them the same two questions. We put all those answers into a spreadsheet, grouped them together by category. Then I did what they said to do, and our sales have quadrupled. <laughs> so it hasn't been it hasn't been all that complicated. Do what your guests and your team tells you is smart, and uh, you can have great results. Uh, it's awesome, man. And and the mission statement, the simplicity of it is great. I, I, I'd imagine the employees really appreciate the freedom that you're giving them to provide a great experience. Um, you know, all, all really smart stuff. Um, I'd imagine your turnover levels are, are, are pretty low compared to the industry, right? They're pretty low. So if you look at um, uh, management, in the the past four years, I've lost one GM, um, and uh, they went on to be a multi-unit manager at another brand. Um, and uh, my team member turnover is under a hundred percent. So I think I think that's I think that's important. Um, you know, we we try to listen to our, we try to have. We try to be an I love it here place to work. So part of delivering an I love it here experience is being an I love it here place to work. I like to say that the uh, guest experience is never going to exceed the team member's experience. So if you want to deliver I love it here, you better have an I love it here place to work. And so we do our best. We do our best to do that. Cool. Uh, Is there any other unit economic data that you'd like to share? Yeah, so as you can expect, when average unit volumes go from, you know, seven or eight hundred thousand to three million, that unit economics improve improve greatly. You know, one of the things I was worried about when I came here is that our, you know, our rents were so our rents were so high being California. But once you quadruple your average unit volumes, all of a sudden your rents tend to get in line on a on a percentage basis. So now our <laughs> now our rents are you know our rents are doing doing a lot better. Um, um, so um, yeah, you know we're in the we're in the high teens. Um, I think that uh, with the supply chain issues the past couple of years, our food costs have 
gone up a bit. I've been fairly reluctant to take too many price increases. I tend to be pretty conservative when it comes to pricing. Um, I have taken some, probably not a, probably I could take more, um, but that's a lever you can't push back. So I've been, I've been pretty slow on that. But yeah, our, our, uh, we're in the high teens, which in California with the, uh, you know, with the, the high costs, I'm, I'm pretty pleased with. Cool. Are there uh, any opportunities there for you to expand that margin? Yeah, I, um, I think that there is. I, like I said, I think that we do have some, some pricing flexibility that, that, you know, I think you could be aware of. I mean, one of the things, one of the things that I think brands have to be careful with is their unit economics of delivery. Um, delivery is an interesting story for us. So um, this is another case where um, my team kind of proved that I don't know anything and they know everything is that my IT folks came to me in 2017 and said, hey, you know, I think we should try third-party delivery. And I said, no way. Um, I have no interest in delivering bad food and uh, and charging and not making any money for it, right? Is that why do I want why do I want people to have bad food and 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 us not make any money? It makes no sense to me. And my IT folks said, you know, I I really think that we got to put our toe in the water on this. And and so we we did it in a couple. I said, all right, fine. You know, we'll do one delivery platform. I think we started off with with Uber Eats and and uh, uh, and, and two restaurants. And pretty quickly we got we were in high single digits in mix and i said well you know high single digits in mix that's pretty good let's do it some more places and then pretty quickly that went to well i guess we ought to think about having more than one delivery service you know let's bring another one on and and uh by the time COVID hit we had gradually grown from you know zero percent delivery to you know the first year we did delivery we were probably eight or nine percent um going into covid we were um 18 to 20 percent and then as i mentioned during covid we get up as high as 80 but if i had had my way we would have never done delivery and we wouldn't be the company that we are today but luckily i have smarter people working for me than i am and they told me that they thought this delivery would be a thing and they were right. But one of the things I said from the very beginning is that if we're going to do delivery, we got to make money. I'm not going to have my people working their, their butts off. And, and so, um, I charged a premium, um, for delivery in order to make up for that margin loss that you have to pay to the third party providers. Um, and I have found, I get literally, I get virtually zero complaints from guests on pricing on delivery. I can remember going to um, some conventions and things and the the biggest the biggest groups of folks were meeting talking about how do you make money at delivery? And I was always standing in the back of the room going, well, you gotta charge more <laughs> you know, if you wanna make money and that's worked for us. We, um, 
we we charge about a 20 percent uh our menu prices for delivery are about 20 percent higher um there's way more price flexibility on delivery than there is dine-in and people are looking for the convenience they're willing to pay for that convenience and that's worked for us so um i uh i i would not do delivery if i couldn't charge a premium for it there's one there's one third-party service and i won't i won't say who it is but for for a couple of years they said we couldn't have different pricing on their platform than uh than we had on our menus and so i didn't use that i didn't use that platform and because it just doesn't make sense to do delivery unless you're making money at it and folks will make theoretical arguments about incremental profit and those incremental sales and how that's labor in my experience that's all baloney um you you got to make as much money on that third party delivery as you make on your in-store transactions or it just doesn't make sense to me yeah it's the only way it's going to work for both parties yeah, uh, I completely agree. Um, you know, obviously your top line's grown a ton over the last few years, but do you still see some some opportunities for growth there? Yeah, so um, we've done very little menu expansion. Um, one of the things that I really want to do is develop a great fried chicken sandwich. As you know, I have a, a pretty big fried chicken background and and have a lot of passion for fried chicken and and. Uh, and so we're working on a fried chicken sandwich, and I think that's the next logical extension. Um, I, I've been very reluctant to, our, to expand our menu because I think that being great um, at, at a few things is better than being mediocre at many. And so I've, you know, I've tried to really focus on you know, be, having I love it here food, you know, I love it here burgers, and I love it here grilled cheese sandwiches. Um, one of the things I didn't mention is that um, the other thing that has happened since 2016 is that burgers have become the biggest part of our menu. And uh, today we're about a 60-40, 60-40 mix of burgers. And we have a really super unique burger that's different from a burger that you get anywhere else. First, we use a blend of Angus and Wagyu and everybody who sells burgers is in love with their blend, but we're the, we're the only ones I know that uses Wagyu in their blend. And so it makes that burger really juicy. But the other, the other cool thing that we do, there's a couple of things. One is we chop our burgers. So um, after we, we, we smash the burger, we chop it. And we do that so that cheese can get into every nook and cranny of the burger and make it kind of a unique burger. And with a, with a brand like The Melt, you want cheese to be a big part of the product. So um, I was actually touring restaurants in New York and the bodegas in New York have a, pro, a product called a chopped cheese. And a chopped cheese is kind of like a Philly cheesesteak, but they make it with ground beef instead of cheesesteak. And I thought maybe this is what the melt melt burger should be maybe it should be a chopped cheese this feels like something that we would serve at the melt and uh you know i worked on it and at the last minute i kind of chickened out and i said you know what it's kind of hard to eat a chopped cheese every day of the week but people eat burgers multiple times a week let me make it sort of like a chopped cheese but more like a burger and so instead of two standard deviations away from a burger, I went one standard deviation away from a burger. And so what we do is we take that burger, we chop it. 
Um, and uh, then we have a, a pickle jalapeno mix. It's kind of like chopped pickles and jalapenos, and we put that on. Then we use um, two slices of cheddar um, on top. And when you melt that cheddar, it gets into the nooks and crannies of the burger. That pickle jalapeno mix gets into the nooks and crannies of the burger. We have a super unique burger. Um, I think that the key to any successful restaurant is your food has to be differentiated. And there's nobody who has a burger that's anything like our melt burger. And so um, today we sell more melt burgers than we sell grilled cheeses. Our grilled cheeses are fantastic and the best grilled cheeses you can get anywhere. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty proud of our melt burger. It's something that we developed from scratch and uh, is, is, a, is a pretty cool product. And today on all of our new restaurants, um, you know, signage says the melt and then underneath our tagline is world's meltiest burger. And, uh, it's a, uh, it's a dang good burger. I have one for lunch just about every day. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds fantastic. You're making me hungry. So, uh, when I was in college in DC, uh, there was a deli right near our uh, school called wise millers and they did kind of a chopped burger thing called the burger madness. Uh, it was yeah. absolutely fantastic. So, uh, I'm going to have to get out to California and try a melt burger. Um, speaking of California, um, yeah. outside of, you know, the, the high real estate costs, what are, what are some of the other largest obstacles, uh, that you have to do in business there? Yeah, look, it's no secret to anybody that California is a, a challenging place to run a restaurant company. And, uh, you have the, the legislative challenges, you have the, the team member challenges, um, you have uh, uh, our minimum wage challenges. You know, our uh, my minimum wage at my uh, minimum hourly wage at West Hollywood, which is one of my newest restaurants, is now nineteen oh six. And uh, so, um, and every place that I operate today has a minimum wage. It's fifteen dollars or or fifteen seventy five, I think, or higher. Um, so that's a challenge, but the other thing that California brings is, um, you know, it is a, it is a huge economy and, um, there is the opportunity to, um, still make money and every, everybody you compete against has the same challenges as you do. Um, I don't, I don't find myself worrying too much about minimum wage for example because if everybody has to pay that same minimum wage you're kind of on an on an even field i think that it it does it does mean that the prices you have to charge in california have to be a little bit higher um that's one of the things that we'll have to figure out as we go to arizona is um does our pricing model stay the same um or or are is that pricing in arizona going to be different than it is in in uh, California, but um, there are challenges. Uh, uh, but you just you just have to understand the understand the rules of the game, and and uh, everybody's playing by the same set of rules. So um, that's you just got to make sure that again, if you can deliver, I love it here food, and I love it here service. You're going to do well. Um, it doesn't matter what yeah. state you're in. For sure. So, um, you know, speaking of California, it's the, some of the companies that I cover that have a lot of exposure to California, Jack in the Box and, and Chipotle are two of them. They're, they're testing automation technology 
uh, in their kitchens, right? So they're, they're further along that technology curve than a lot of um, chains that are maybe based in the South where labor and real estate come a little cheaper. So are there any tech upgrades or automation or anything that you're implementing or testing or, or, or thinking about uh, installing in your restaurants? Yeah, so we've always had really good technology. We've had kiosks in our restaurant since we were founded in 2011. Um, today, about 25% of our orders are taken at the kiosk. And uh, I, I'm not, I, have to, I have to tell you, I'm not sure that it, that necessarily leads to a labor savings, though. Um, the way I look at kiosks is everybody comes to your restaurant with a different expectation level of service. Some people like kiosks. Some people want more one-on-one in-person service. Um, Some people would rather use an app. And so um, what I do is I have a really good app. And again, we've had an app since 2011. Also, we, um, when I, when I first, when I first got to Melt, we had, um, you know, 18 restaurants and 16 IT people. And we were doing, (laughs) you know, so we had our own app and our own kiosk and, and, uh, but so we have a great, great apps, great kiosks, um, great online. And so I think that that does take some of the pressure off front, off the front. Um, so I, I'm always looking at how technology, I look at how technology can make the experience better, both for team members and for guests. I haven't really looked at technology so much as uh, decreasing the costs. And, uh, you know, we're a small brand and other people may be work, working on that. But I think a big part of I Love It Here is team members who can deliver I Love It Here. And so I think that's always going to be a big, a big piece of our model. Um, but I do think you need to have um, the, the technology that, um, that guests want. I see some brands who are kiosk only or some brands that are app only um what i believe is you need to have the option of kiosk app or front counter and whatever the guest is most comfortable with that's going to be i love it here um there's one one national uh burger chain that i know i won't mention any names but started in new york where um you know you go into their restaurants today and they they try to push people to the kiosk and I just don't think that that's the right way to do it. I think if you want to use the kiosk, use the kiosk. If you want to, if you want to talk to a person, talk to a person. I agree. Um, all right. So, what are your biggest concerns? What worries you most? Yeah, I think right now we're really ramping up our unit growth, so um, attracting um, enough folks to, especially management level folks who can deliver. I love it here. Um, that's really important. I think with the supply chain chain challenges right now, it's taken a lot longer to build new restaurants. Um, equipment's harder to get and it's more expensive. Um, I, I seem to be two steps behind the rabbit all the time on how much costs are, you know, costs are increasing and how it's, how it's delaying, um, the, the, our builds, you know, we used to be able to say we could build a restaurant in 90 days. 
And you just can't build a restaurant in 90 days anymore. There's just too many supply chain issues and and uh, too many labor, labor issues to to get that done. So I think that those are the, you know, that those are the big challenges. But you know, we have four restaurants that are going to open, four new restaurants that are going to open before the end of the year. Our next new restaurant is going to be in Del Mar, just north of La Jolla, in San Francisco. And then we have three that are going to be opening in um in the south bay in san francisco um one in mountain view one in sunnyvale and one in santa clara um and then we have five restaurants um five plus restaurants in the pipeline including two in arizona next year so um making sure that you don't grow faster than you have i love it here teams in place for is the is the number one is the number one priority for me. Um, you can't get too far out ahead of your skis. Um, I love it here is a big reason why we're where we are today. And if we start opening new restaurants that can't deliver, I love it here, then uh, then we're not going to we're not going to be able to sustain the things that we've been able to build for the past few years. That's great, man. Um, listen, this was fun. Uh, you know, congratulations on your success. Good luck. Uh, moving forward. Thanks again for doing this. All right. Thank you, Michael. It's, it's been a blast. Yeah, it's good, good to catch up. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, I also want to thank the listeners for tuning in. Uh, keep an eye out for our next episode airing in a few weeks. We'll be interviewing Howard Penny, Managing Director and Senior Restaurant Analyst at Hedge Eye. Have a good day, everybody. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.